Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 61. We're here to wrap up our volume 15 discussion. Uh, with me today, of course, I have my regulars, Griffith and Azil. No guests this time, couldn't line one up, but we'll have that pretty soon, so stay tuned for that. If you have not already checked out our Patreon, we have lots of donors, lots of new donors. People are con- continuing to give money to the cause, and just wanted to say we really appreciate that. And if you guys probably have already checked it out, but Puella has also been really consistent with her translation stuff. The most recent continuation of the 1996 interview is my favorite section she's done yet, because it gives a lot of insight into Mira's process. Like, uh, it's kind of like the a lot of it's the baseline for how we understand how Mira works. And he added to that in our 2009 interview, but it's really cool to see him talk about his process and kind of what he does on a day-to-day basis. And also comparing that to what we know of his current work schedule. Like, you know, he was saying that he's able to balance his work needs and life needs. He's able to keep them in harmony, and so he's able to keep the schedule that he does. And that was 15 years ago, so, or more than that, almost 20 years ago now. So things have changed in 20 years, understandably. So anyway, um, this is in the translation section if you've not checked it out yet. So we're hopefully going to wrap up Volume 15. I'm pretty sure we can do that. We left off Volume 15 right as Jill and Roisin took to the sky, just a little before the halfway point of the volume. The way this section opens is, you know, we'd already discussed how Jill's taking Roisin into Misty Valley, and that's the next, you know, half of this volume is pretty much all about Misty Valley. From Mm -hmm. Roisin's perspective, Jill's perspective of it, Puck as he kind of infiltrates it stealthily, and Guts takes, you know, the low road there. So it's interesting how you get different perspectives of the whole place. Everyone has their own perspective on what the Misty Valley is all about. Kind of generally about this section, and it really emphasizes something that I I meant to mention last time, but I kind of forgot to, and that is that do you guys see any influence here in terms of Roisin's character and, like, say, Peter Pan or something like that, like Lost Boys Syndrome? Yeah, um, I guess you could say so. I uh, mean, there's some really obvious parallels. I'm just not sure if it's so overt that it means it's necessarily from Peter Pan, you know? Well, there's one thing that's interesting, which is uh, the stillness aspect of the Misty Valley. You know, the fact the weather never changes, that kind of stuff. Which actually, <clears throat> Jill comments on, you know, uh, when he, when it ends, you know, when actually the spell is broken and she sees the sky is much more violent. There's a lot of wind, you know, and it's a it's a different, you know, type of atmosphere. So that's uh, something I, I've always found, and I guess that echoes a bit the principle of you know Neverland, where you know kids don't grow up. You know that idea of things that are stuck in time. You know, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, that that was the primary thing I was going to say was. You know, the girl who refused to grow up, which is what Roisin is, and Peter Pan is, of course, the boy who refused to grow up. But also, it's a society led by children who scorn adulthood, and they fly around in the sky. I mean, all these things are good parallels, but the question is, uh, the basis of Peter Pan, you know, what what makes that story memorable and powerful is that it does, you know, it ties into archetypes that are, you know, uh, timeless. And so Mira could just also be pulling from a similar cloth in terms of that, in terms of dealing with a, a society led by children and yeah, I think, you know, when you're going to have children characters, there's only so much you can do. I mean, I think the treatment is a bit different here because they are apostles, so obviously they're evil and such. But, yeah, I think the, those powers aren't necessarily, like, you know, influenced 
so much as they are just similar because you know they are. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I also like how Mira here he takes a look at how children view the adult world. You know when you know for example the the apostles you know the pseudo apostles do the little you know war you know mm-hmm. they play game war or whatever. <clears throat> Yeah, and of course, you know, the other side of that whole Neverland parallel is that Roisin's vision of a paradise is tainted by her innate evil. And so, and she even rationalizes that later in the volume, and we'll get to that. She kind of explains to Jill why it is the way it is and why that's okay that death still happens in her little faux paradise. But anyway, that's a good enough transition. Uh, Griff, did you have anything broadly to, to talk about this, or did we pretty much hit it? Uh, you pretty much hit it, but I was just going to say, like, yeah, I definitely see the overlap and themes, you know, but mm-hmm. obviously this has a, a much sort of darker twist on the on that sort of desire to, yeah. you know, stay young forever, to stay in stasis, or be a kid forever. Yeah, and she's able to accomplish that, but at what cost? You know, that's another familiar berserk theme is that you can achieve quite a bit with this evil power, but at what price are you paying to accomplish that? And yeah. yeah. It's also worth mentioning that it's not like her driving point was not to stay young or anything like that. She wanted to actually escape a life. So it's not exactly the same, you know, thing that's motivating her that was motivating, you know, Peter, for example. Well, story. that's true. She wanted to be something else altogether. Yeah. Sure. I think there's an aspect of wanting to remain a child, though, because she continually scorns adults. She hates adults, yeah. yeah and adult yeah. society and all that stuff. So that's still there. But you're right. The, the impetus was to be separate, to find to find out who she was, to discover that she was truly independent from the society she was grown up to be. All, all the whole PCAF thing we discussed last time. So, yeah. Yeah. For sure. There's also a, a futility to it because, you know, all those things that she wanted to get away from in the adult world – they're actually kind of doing with their little play war. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not, it's obviously not better. Right. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting to to get Puck's perspective on this. You know, I, I find it uh, pretty invaluable throughout this segment because he actually sees it from, you know, like a non-human perspective. And, you know, he reflects on the fact like only humans could behave like that, you know, humans right. and monsters and that. You know, I, I find that part interesting, that, you know, children or adults, you know, humans are going to be humans, and even though these guys are pretending to be elves, they're just not like the real deal. We'll go ahead and get started. Uh, as we start this section, Jill and Roisin are still surveying Misty Valley, and Roisin's asking, you know, if she wants to join them, and Jill's expressing reservation, and... Uh, Roisin guesses if it's because of her relationship with the Black Swordsman that holds her back, but uh, they kind of don't. They don't really dwell on that. You can kind of see a little bit of internal monologue with Jill. She kind of her cheeks blush, but she's not revealing yeah. anything, you know, profound here. You know, it's not. I don't think it's that that's holding her back. You know, I think it's Roisin merely, you know, toying with Jill. Yeah. I think there's an aspect of truth that, you know, she might have, you know, a bit of a crush on him. But, you know, that being said, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that she's actually considering it. You know, like, Jill is not outright refusing. She's like, you know, she's just waiting it. Uh, but but she's tempted by the offer. Yeah, we we hear a little bit more about her reservations for for changing and not changing later on when Puck's talking to her. Really interesting stuff, but... yeah. 
Anyway, this section's more about her saying that she wonders, you know, if Guts will survive in her valley down below, because she's set, a, a, not a trap, but defenses in case of invaders like Guts. And uh, she tells, she calls these guardians, uh, forest guardians, as real grown-ups, uh, those that wouldn't, um, would, ever, would never hurt children. So it's interesting that she has a role for adulthood here. But it's subservient, you know. She still has a, a use for the adults that come straight into her valley. She, but she's, you know, changed them, uh, made them subservient. Anyway, as Guts arrives in the Misty Valley, he comments on how the mist is deeper and denser and is, uh, envelops the whole area. You know, you can't help but think of Ganeshka at that point, and the mist that was there was supernatural. Um, I mean, it, it seems like an obvious answer, but I don't quite know how to explain it. Did it come from Roshin? Well, yeah, that's one of the, you know, it's one of the things where it's just, you know, like, things are not, you know, the rules are not set in stone or anything like that, so I'm not sure it's Roshin who, you know, created it or whether, you know, it came as part of her deal with the Gold Hand and, mm -hmm. and that place was chosen, but, uh, yeah, in any case, it's it's part of the package. So, you yeah. know... Like we we could raise a lot of questions. Like if she chose another layer, could she erect another mist barrier around it? That kind mm -hmm. of stuff. You know, maybe what? Maybe who knows? But uh, yeah, it's a bit. You know, I don't think we can answer that. Yeah, we, it is. It, it's interesting because I always I never really thought of that, and it's sort of you know it seems like it would be something like almost oh there's a spell over the area you know and when you you know you kill the villain you know the spell goes away but it's like yeah it does make me want to think of like some organic solution like you know the way she sets up the hive creates the mist you know there's something about the the process in which they make new uh, new pseudo apostles or something yeah. like that well, but you know you always... don't know. We could always rationalize it, say the cocoons, or you know that mm -hmm. they meet the mist, or anything like that. Yeah. But honestly, I think. Or she's blowing more... it out of you know when her final form she has you know sort of like yeah. jets she could be expelling it from, but you know, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, it's probably you know more like just you know magic, and it actually yeah. reminds me of you know what go went on with the uh, Beherit Apostle you know later on in the story where you know he's got the whole area you know which is part of his sacrifice and that's uh, kind of unusual but you know that's the kind of things which you know just happens in the world I guess. But I mean mist isn't out of the question for apostles. Whenever they transform, they they emit this mist and you know mist also precedes Skull Knight whenever he comes out. Uh, so. There is something Mira is using or trying to allude to with the usage of mist. So I don't. There's some precedent for mist, I guess I'm saying, but I don't. I don't. I don't have a simple way of rationalizing its use here, other than it being atmospheric and yet somehow tied to the area being, you know, warped in a way. Yeah. Well, in this, in this case, it's uh, it's almost like some kind of intangible barrier. You know, you know, you're entering yeah. the danger zone when you penetrate into the mist. So yeah. And as we turn the page here, you know, Guts has arrived. And he comments on it, saying that the brand has begun bleeding, and so he concludes this must be the you know the precipice of the Misty Valley. Basically, mm. the first thing he sees is this mound of corpses. A very memorable uh, panel here, or with uh, you know this just ball of corpses. Actually, I did some you know uh, surface level research on what kind of bugs create mounds like this, and the first thing I came up with like was a dung beetle. Well, the yeah. dung beetle makes its home, gathers its home in a ball. I don't know that it lives in it necessarily like that, but it usually uses it as a food source. And so I'm just wondering, because the reason I ask bring that up is because Mir is taking some obvious inspiration from insect designs 
with these pseudo apostles. I just wondered if he had a particular insect in mind with that design of the ball. Well, you know, I think the scarab, the, the one, the big one, you know, mm-hmm. one of the two knights. Uh, I, I always figured he was the one who just, you know, rolled it up like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, the guys we see, you know, erupting out are just, you know. How to say? Well, they were recently uh, created, so I think they are just—they were just in there, you know, eating mm. up, feasting on the food, you know. Yeah, these are some of the cooler pseudo apostle designs, I think, uh, because they're not just—I mean, because Mira is incorporating some insect designs along with like human elements. So it's, it's a lot of—you can tell there's a lot of thought put into how they were created, how they were designed, into each and every one of them. There's some weird, gross things happening with their bodies pretty cool yeah and insects in general are pretty cool and you know i like muras i think often inspired himself you know by insect designs you know uh, to create apostles so it's pretty cool to see him do it more straightforwardly here <clears throat> yeah so these guys emerge and obviously it's a callback to last volume that these are the bandits from the previous section that had tried to kidnap jill and the first thing I thought of in this reread was it reminds me a lot of uh, the pirates. The pirates. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't help but think that because, you know, they retain their individual personalities and they call back to you know, memories that they had when they were just humans, you know, remember us basically. And, um, but yeah, and yet they're, I mean, I don't want to use the word brainwashed. It's like their entire being or existence has changed to be subservient to Roshin's cause. Yeah. But it's not you really know- delved into very much, you know. It's uh, it's pretty similar to Zondark as well, you know, where he's mm. he's he still retains some part of himself, but at the core he's just being controlled by the you know the count, and you know, so I think it's uh, it's pretty similar here, and that's pretty you know how to say. I mean, it's typical of how pseudo apostles tend to walk from from what we see. Yeah, it certainly is consistent. Is the I mean, it's. <laughs> The most widely, I mean, this is an army of pseudo apostles. You know, he fights like, you know, I don't know, around a hundred, it seems, by the end of this whole thing. I yeah, and that's count. just sort of the tip. Of, it's interesting. It's the tip of the iceberg. Is yeah, she's got multiple kinds of pseudo apostles. It seems like it's endless. Each yeah. one of them is almost an individual, and then she's got her, you know, her army of uh, the pseudo fairies or elves. I also like how Guts' personality is. Uh, is emerging in this scene too as he just sort of you know laughs off this uh, you know this happenstance and starts making fun of them basically like you know you guys hey you guys don't look the same anymore <laughs> you know, as you sort of did with Zod Dark and will continue to do with people that become monsters yeah interestingly though he's able to laugh it off initially but you know he does you can tell his face on the, the following page they're more resilient and it's going to be a tougher fight than it was before it's not just a pushover anymore yeah that being but said, but I feel like Guts, you know, sort of steals himself this way yeah. <laughs> with a sense of humor. I like that he tries the knives and they don't work, and he tries the crossbow, uh, repeater crossbow, and you know, even that's not super effective. It's it's kind of like the games where neither of those weapons are useful at all. He's <laughs> <when> fighting <laughs> things. So he, um, the another cool part about this whole fight to me is the dynamic, because these guys use, you know, I don't, don't want to call it teamwork, but they kind of swarm him. You know, yeah. he's got two people at once, so he has to focus on one while another is gearing up for another attack. And so he has to use these kind of combo moves multiple times. Uh, and uh, I feel kind of stupid not remembering, but by the end of the fight, he uses the um, the combo Dragon Slayer and Cannon. Cannon. He used yeah. that in the last volume, though, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Right. So the first time he's uh, with the three, and yeah. the second time he's with the two 
knights. Right, right, right. Uh, to be guys. But yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And I like the designs, you know, like the insects uh, are not necessarily the most common ones, you know, and, uh, yeah. you know, they make for some pretty interesting, you know, abilities, like, you know, the ones that grab the dragon slayers, the other one, like you said, you know, they do some kind of teamwork. So it's it's pretty, both the, the way they attack and the way Guts deals with it is pretty interesting, like swing the sword with the other one still attached to it, you know, mm-hmm. that's uh, it's pretty fucking badass. Well, it's also interesting to me that he didn't see the transformation coming, like, it seemed like he just thought, you know, they were what they were. And then when uh, the tail comes whipping up there, or the, I guess, the abdomen with the, the pinchers on it, you know, he, he looks kind of shocked and pissed yeah. at the same time, you know, as he doesn't know what's going on here. So it was an interesting escalation. Yeah, Even he survives on, on reflexes. Yeah. Uh, the largest of the bandits becomes... I don't know if it's a scarab or a stag beetle. They look, look pretty similar to me, but either way, it tackles guts and uses its pincers to. So it's really cool because there's moment of suspense and tension because the the tree is holding back the pincers from guts neck, but then it like you can tell it's straining and you can see the tree beginning to crumble around yeah. his neck. It's a nice moment of suspense here, and it actually nicks his neck, you know, quite a bit. Uh, but he he manages to use it crossbow to plow through the guy's face. Uh, but you know, even that, even though that's happening, even though he's stuck, this disturbing spider, the way it emerges is just terrifying. Like the the helmet the guy's wearing splits open, yeah, and then his you know little spider stuff comes out of his mouth. Ugh. It's, it's yeah, it's one of the most you know I would say disgusting Plus ones. His, his weird little Mustache. you know hairs coming off of him too. Yeah, it's yeah. just horrifying. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, he's able to use a combo attack here. It looks really cool. Uh, one of those frames where Mira uses multiple, you know, frames of animation to show guts in action. Yeah. I also like how we see that his dagger's tip is breaking. Like, it shows how tough these guys, you know, uh, Carapace is. Yeah. And also how desperate he is because it's like that was his, you know, he tried multiple ways to get out of the situation. And he's like, this one's failing, this one's failing, fuck, what do I do? And he oh, has to oh my God. Just, yeah, when he braces himself and then you see like the little, you know, the spider's mouth getting close yeah. and, you know, Ugh. gets to its hair. It's just like, oh my God. Yeah, and there were, there, these guys aren't, but, you know, you can see initially the as the fight goes, they're pretty resilient. They're not, it's not just one swipe and they're done. You know, as we turn the page, we see these more generic, uh, you know, pseudo-apostles emerge. They look, you know, they're much less human. And um, they just, you know, there's probably dozens and dozens at this point. But he tries the crossbow, but that doesn't work. You know, he has to take more drastic means. And uh, I like this shot, you know, a pretty memorable shot as well. When he ditches the crossbow, takes out the dragon slayer, and you know, swipes it at the, the, the perspective of the viewer's. In yeah. a dramatic fashion. I love how it's drawn there as well. You can tell he used a different kind of pen to pointillate the uh, the Dragon Slayer in motion for that. And uh, gears up for attack. And the way the, the way the scene transitions is also really cool. You just see a small slice of his face going berserk before the scene just ends abruptly. Yeah. Really nicely done. And then there's Puck in the Misty Valley. This is one of the more effective comic moments for the series. It just lays it on so thick. You know, there's the way Puck's drawn, the the action that's happening with the crow or the raven, whatever it happens to be. Uh, it's all pretty funny. You know, only that last two page, but pages. But it, it made me think like, 
some newer viewers, readers complain about the comedy. I actually wish there were more moments like this. Like we get to see this this caricature of the God Hand, and it's actually really I think it's really cleverly done the way it's designed. Like you know they actually retain some of their personality traits. You know it's all distilled into like a Saturday morning cartoon version of them. I mean, imagine if we could see something like that for current characters. I think that'd be really funny to see this kind of kind of stuff. Would be nice. Yeah. But I like I like how we also see a little bit into Puck's perspective on things, wondering how this whole this whole scene is Puck trying to rationalize Guts' actions. Puck's trying to understand why Guts would go that far in his in his pursuit of revenge. Like, what is it that set him off, and, and who are the, the God Hand? Of course, it's actually several volumes before Puck knows the true story. It's actually when Guts tells Rickert that he explicitly knows what happened uh, with the sacrifice and Casca and all that stuff. Still quite a bit more time before he's able to truly get his answer. And it also, I mean, it, but reading between the lines, you can also read Guts' hesitation to share that story. You know, he wouldn't, he hadn't even told Puck, his, his companion for two years, that story until it was basically forced out of him by Rickert. And so, I'm one of those guys that always trumpets. Why hasn't Guts told his comrades about what happened? Why hasn't he told them what apostles are? Why Casca's in the state he's in? She is in all that stuff. But obviously, it's a very painful memory, and it's not something he likes to just drag up casually. You know, it's a big deal. Yeah. So yeah. it makes well, sense. It's, it's, it's a pretty also, big he's just trauma. not the type to. He yeah, it's the trauma to him, and that he doesn't want to talk about it. And it's also sort of I feel like his kind of his stoic way with people. Where, you know, he's guarded and he doesn't like to talk about things and he doesn't like to, you know, he's not the type to sort of complain about his problems. Yeah. That's how you he know, probably, that's probably how he rationalizes it, but it's also that, yeah, he just can't deal with it either. Yeah, you know, like it took, you know, him breaking down in front of Casca before he talked to anyone about Gambino and Donovan and that kind of stuff, you know. So, yeah, I, I don't find it very surprising, especially, you know, like I said, because it's also a pretty big trauma for him. So, you know, he's not the type to talk, and he's definitely not the type to talk about this kind of stuff. Right. And he really only told Rickert because, you know, he demanded it and, you know, had a right to know. Yeah, yeah. Rickert, Rickert had some skin in the game to, to know what had happened, basically. Yeah, and that's because, you know, Griffiths came in front of them and everything like that. It's not, it's a, it was pretty big, you know, pretty big thing. And I always got the impression just from, you know, we don't actually see him telling the story, but just from how it was framed and how Griff, I mean, Rickert described being told that Guts sort of, you know, was cold and, you know, in his uh, retelling. You know, he probably yeah. just gave him just the facts, you know, kind of, yeah, he didn't try to you know, get too involved in it himself, thinking about yeah. it, just trying to sort of get it out there and sure. get it over with. Yeah, I mean, Mira cut there for a reason as well, I think. Yeah. You know, didn't want to make it too dramatic, his reading of it. Anyway, anyway, getting ahead of ourselves, talking about volume 21, 22. Um, after the crow, what, what is this, a crow raven? I guess we don't really know. I guess it's a raven. Anyway, Puck's pulling at the hairs of his head, which you know the, the bald spot grows. He's pulling it out like you would like a like a leaf or a flower, without yeah. absentmindedly. And this crow is getting in, increasingly angry at him. You can see the you know the nerves growing on his head. He's Comical. already semi bald and angry from it, but then Puck just goes into overdrive doing it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns on him and you know pecks him you know multiple ways, and Puck falls to the misty valley, bleeding in multiple places. 
And then we have this massive two-page spread of the just a, it's just a big white void over the Misty Valley, and he suddenly realizes where he is, and he commits himself to infiltrating it to find Jill, and make sure she's okay, because he's he's yeah. broken up with guts, you know. So he zooms in on there like a kamikaze. I find it interesting that the mist is also covering the sky, you know, above mm. the valley. Is it? Well, yeah, I, I, that's the feeling I get from that shot, you know, where he comes and there's, there's that big white gap, you know. He's falling it's... upside down, though. Mm. Yeah, he's falling upside down, and then he, we're seeing, we're looking down. No, I the... think... I, All the following think, panels, you can see it on the, the lower part, not the upper part. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like, you know, the mist is below him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the mist is curving up the valley, but, you know, he goes through, and then you can see the sky from there. You know you know what I mean? Oh, okay. I think so. <laughs> you mean yeah. once he once he's in there, you can still see the sky, is what you yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. That is so, weird. Yeah, that, that is, you know, my point is just, uh, it's part of what makes the place, you know, like supernatural. Mm. Sure, yeah. Anyway, uh, Puck determines to go inside and rescue Jill. And we transition back to Guts, who just finished wiping out, you know, genocide on insects. And uh, I like how they're still kind of uh, rattling, as, you know, as he's already decapitated one of the guys and still hanging on to his hand and he stomps on it afterwards or pull it off of his hand to stomp on it but then he encounters these two more well-built more strategic and tactical uh, of the pseudo apostles that were formerly knights as we learn and they immediately transform into a praying mantis and i don't know a rhino beetle i'm guessing i think it is yeah i think that's it honestly you know insect stuff that's not etymology is not one of my big Things. I don't really know when it comes to Well, you know, it's it's also pretty complicated, you know, to differentiate them. So it's like, yeah. I don't know, millions and millions of, you know, different types of beetles. So. <laughs> yeah. Either way, you can tell they're based on real-world designs, which is neat. And well, uh, I actually wonder if... They get if... the most, like, minimalistic transitions, actually, mm. that you've I think we've ever seen, in a way. I mean, other than something off-screen, you know, we get to see the rhino beetle's guy head start to protrude and the uh, the mantis's hand, you know, change. And then, you know, Guts basically, you know, sort of challenges them, and on the next page, they're already ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I find it interesting that these guys are not even pretending. Like, the, the previous guys are still wearing, you know, you know, helmets, anything like that. But these guys are just, you know, but naked. And they are just, you know, they transform, they're ready to go. They don't even try. They know Guts is serious. So they give it their all right away. Yeah. Also, I feel like maybe they're more, you know, used to their lifestyle here. Like, it seems like they've, you know, embraced being guardians. Yeah. Well, you know, they, we already saw them traveling with Roshin back when they killed, oh, yeah. you know, uh, That's the band of the Falcons. They were already there. So these guys, let's also take back, you know. I forgot about that completely, and the the, the oh, corpse you know, I wonder ball is if also that's there. Why, I wonder if that's why that transition happened so you know quickly, just so you know, basically it could get to the reveal page of you know, oh hey, it's these guys. Yeah, right. indeed. And also in terms of the pacing of the fight, it makes sense that they would transform because they've seen what he's capable of, as as you already said. They know Guts yeah. is serious, and they're actually impressed by what, what he's done too. Yeah, that is neat because they are they, they kind of have a moment of pause here before they engage with him, and, and they do admire him that he's able to get this far alone. So that's it's neat that there's a little bit of yeah, they, war, warrior respect happening here. 
Well, yeah, they don't seem to have any sort of, you know, you know, they're not giving any attitude or anything. There's just this sort of feeling of concern, you know, that, oh, wow, our defenses have been, you know, defeated yeah. here. They're, <laughs> like, they're stoic, con- like knights. Yeah, this is concerning. <laughs> Let's yeah. deal with it. What I find interesting about their initial engagement here on these pages is that Guts either misjudges or is too slow to react to both of their attacks. You know, the praying mantis... It actually goes for Guts' arms. Uh, it was going for kind of a disarming attack. And the same thing happens with the, the beetle, where Guts tries to get the horn, but it actually it just, it, it lifted him up. So it, it, they were going for these kind of like secondary attacks, not necessarily trying to gouge him right yet, but just trying to catch him off guard, using teamwork, attacking at the same moment. Yeah, well, it shows uh, it's just you know another level of you know fighting. They're not... They're actually able to use some type of strategy, you know, with this combined attack and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it also shows, I think, that, you know, they're really another level, you know, yeah. from what he, he just fought. Right, actual battle tactics instead of just swarming him. So yeah. it's a different, you're right, it upgraded the fight intensity. Anyway, we have this transition here to back to the Jill's village. And they're burying the corpses of all the children. And again, it's really horrifying, this mass grave. Uh, probably looks like, I don't know, 50 or so kids in there. And it's also, this scene serves as a very sly introduction to the Holy See, I think. The way how everything's proceeding and uh, the Holy Arden Chain Knights arrive, and when they arrive, everyone immediately assumes that it's an invading army. They hear the horses, and they assume that another invasion is about to happen. So they tell them everyone to run away to the forest. They're already ready to retreat, but uh, the... Father Hobbs uh, tells them to hold still, and he's surprised to see them, you know, all decked out in all their regalia. He actually recognizes them, I'm assuming from their insignias, what they are and who they represent. So, yeah, the Holy Iron Chain Knights stop, and they uh, want to talk to Father Hobbs about what had happened here. And Farnese lays on the line, you know, why they're here. They're actually, um, I mentioned it last time, but they're on a, sent with the Holy See on a mission of miracle recognition. And... I think we know later, or I think it was earlier, that they think that this quest is uh, the appearance of uh, the Black Swordsman is tied to uh, one of the revelations that they had recorded. So I don't need to review that much. But well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's pretty. I, actually, it's a logical deduction. They they found, you know, uh, all the signs that you know the fifth angel was born, and then shortly after that, you know, tales starting going around of uh, Black Swordsman. Who would you know, you know, create trouble because he's reaching for apostles. So you know, it kind of makes sense, you know, for them to follow him. And he's actually from there, so you know, they're really actually not far off when you think about it. They just sort of got the wrong principle from that event, mm-hmm. but otherwise, yeah. <laughs> missing details. But yeah, yeah. We also get a little bit of insight into what's happening broadly in the world, and of course, Volume Seventeen makes that much more clear. But Farnese mentions that. You know, over the past two years, there's been a widespread plague and famine and odd happenings happening throughout the whole world. Mm. And while they inve- they can't investigate all of them, the Black Swordsman is one of the more consistent rumors that come from the people. And uh, they have actually been tracing him. They don't say how long. I'm assuming more than a year or so. And they've been on the, his trail for a while, and they've found, you know, grisly things every time they've followed up on a rumor. So, hot on his tail. It's kind of interesting there's this panel of guts walking away from you know a bunch of corpses, and, and it's a it's a it's a this imagined is like, scene. It is but. this whole thing. I love how he's become like Zod, basically. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, these shots are almost, you know, tributes to the shots of, like, Zod's, you know, like, introduction when they were describing his legends. Yeah, you're right. I never thought about that. Even, even the way it's paneled, you're right. The way it's drawn with the guts and the yeah. silhouette like that. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. There's one thing you skipped over, and, uh, you know, in the in the chapel, when they are talking with uh, to the priest, uh, I think that might be the first time we actually oh, see, we see the, the... the emblem of the falcon. I wrote, I wrote that down, and I wondered about that. I feel like we've commented on it before, though, but you could be right. You could be right. I, I just don't remember the very first time. It, it certainly makes a, a, a memorable centerpiece for these whole scenes. Like, Mira's making no secret of it. It's in almost every page, you know, even even at the grave site, that symbol's there. Yep. No, this is going to drive me nuts now, cause that now though, because uh, did we see this, like, at a funeral or something before? I like, just as a, something in the background? I remember comment. I remember bringing it up and commenting on us talking about the Falcon insignia being revealed early or something like that. I can't remember though. This is probably the first time it's been emphasized. Oh, exactly. And that's what I was trying to say was whether it made a cameo appearance. It's being it's a centerpiece for a lot of these panels. You know, particularly one of the coolest ones in the whole volume here, when uh, we see it shrouded in, in a shadow with light coming out from behind it. You know. Yeah. It's, and it's, coming it's, out of her head. Yeah. As um, it's during that panel that she's talking about. She's trying to rationalize what the black swordsman represents. She's saying, "Is he a figment of someone's imagine their imagination, like a collective fear? Is he uh, just a criminal with exaggerated rumors attached to him, or does he hold some significance to our religion?" And of course, it's implying that is he the fifth angel? But of course, the page is telling us who the fifth angel is. <laughs> But not only that, it's saying that he is the Falcon of Light and Darkness, just with imagery. It is really, really compellingly done. I like that a lot. Anyway, uh, throughout this whole proceedings, uh, Zepic has been overhearing or eavesdropping on the whole thing, trying to... I mean, what do you think his intent here is? Is he trying to... Is he bored trying to latch on to an existing adventure? Is he trying to make yeah. up to his daughter, do you think, for I being see, a loser? I, see, I think uh, he's just know, day drunk and he's yeah, looking for something to do. Yeah. He's, you know, he's looking for glory, you know, pretty much. And, you know, actually, if you see uh, during the funeral at first when they're burying the thing, he's sitting apart, drinking, and he's, you know, like, how to say, he doesn't feel any compassion, he doesn't feel any sadness. He just doesn't care. He he looks like he is actually, you know, full of contempt for for these people, for everything. Even though, you know, like like you said, like fifty children, uh, you know, are dead. So mm-hmm. I think he's just looking for personal glory here, and and that actually materializes in what he he does later on. So yeah, yeah. It's also, I mean, it's very opportunistic of him. I mean, you can imagine it's probably a boring town, and the Holy Iron Chain Knights visiting is probably the most exciting thing that's happened here. Other than Guts' yeah. arrival in, you know, several years. So he's just latching on and trying to, as you say, find glory. But there's a part yeah. of me that wonders if he's internalizing Jill's rebuke of him for just being a loser that hasn't done anything with his life. If he's trying to not make up for himself, but if he's reacting to that. You know, he wants to do something of imp- of importance, you know, make himself important. Somehow. Well, you know, he's always whining about, you know, the war and what he did and his sacrifice. So I think he's really just, you know, more of the same. Honestly, I think he's just more of the same. I, mm. I don't think he's really got his, you know, daughter's welfare or opinion. No, yeah. I don't I don't think so either. Right. I'm saying, personally, it's like if someone calls you a loser, the next thing you would do is try to prove that you're not a loser. That's all. Yeah, yeah, I get it, but... It's also interesting to me that, 
you know, he had his chance to be a hero earlier, you know, front and center, sure, yeah. you know, and he sure did not want to take that opportunity when it was right in front of him. And I feel like it's sort of the same here is that all the danger and everything is so far away. He's been drinking and he's like, I'm going on an adventure, you know, yeah. you know, and he does it, you know, he wouldn't know what to do with it if he caught it. So, yeah, that's basically, I think, what this is, because he sure. obviously in the moment when he could have saved his daughter, you know. He was a coward, you know, sort of logically in the face of guts. But now he's going to go chasing after him or, you know, maybe he just doesn't understand the situation. Right. We transition back to guts. I like the way it goes. These are very abrupt transitions that are happening. Like this one happens with like motion lines, you know, implying obviously a scene is already in action, but. We didn't see the preceding hit. We just see Guts reeling from the hit, you know, kind of spinning backwards, catching the Dragon Slayer in the ground to brace his fall. Well, it could be just the follow-up of uh, the hit from earlier. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's probably what it is. Yeah. Interesting editing technique to to have this massive scene play out. To have, like, a 10-minute scene happen in between (laughs) those hits. Yeah, that's why I didn't be, think about it works that. either way. Where perhaps this is he's continued to get hit <laughs> in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's pretty effective, actually. No, yeah, it yeah. is. It's just a, it's a stupid comment. That's all. Anyway, um, Gus realizes that you know obviously that these guys are tougher than the previous crew, and yeah, then they smarter. reveal they reveal that they were knights, and he actually smiles to himself. You know, re- understanding. You know, this is a tougher fight, but also it's more interesting to him because of that so it's also neat how they just sort of like very openly speak with him <laughs> like you know they're sort yeah. of just you know this mutual they've there's this mutual respect yeah and you know they're not like you know being you know like you know nasty uh, apostle monsters but just very sensible like oh yeah we were knights you know yeah. the other guys were just you know foot soldiers so the problem Guts encounters is the same as when the fight started. He, he can't even reel up for an attack before another one, you know, for one before the second one comes and tackles him from behind. So he just can't seem to find his the harmony of the battle or the balance of the battle, like how he's going to attack one while trying to dodge the other. So Yeah, and they're too fast and just too coordinated for him. Right. Yeah. And so he thinks to himself, it's actually kind of cool. And, you know, he kind of puts it together that if he has to attack at the same time from, you know, from two different places, how can he do that? So he uses his spinning combo to get them both at the same time. And actually, you know, in my head, this is when he invents that technique. But as we already said, it's from volume 14 against the tree. I I just like how he kind of pieces it together, you know, as a warrior might do to discover a new tactic based on practicality or the, the need for a new technique. That kind of thing. But it, yeah, either way, he uses it effectively in battle. Anyway, he's able to dispatch them both, and he's lost a lot of blood from his neck, uh, everywhere across his body. And, you know, him and Guts are, him and Puck are broken up at this point, but Puck actually is left behind kind of a going away present. Uh, he's scattered some dust on the inside of his bag. It's a detail I always forget about uh, when looking, from trying to remember this scene, is that Puck, you know, he le- they left on bad terms, but obviously, you know, he left a little present behind for Guts here. Well, I think, uh, I'm not sure he really meant to. I mean, it's just like, you know, dog hair. <laughs> well, I That's thought so as well, but the, 
the, the text actually says something about that. Guts calls him that sneak, you know, put, put covering the inside of my bag with dust. And of course, I don't have the full translation, but that's what it says here. Anyway, in the Dark Horse, that he, he, you know, kind of mockingly chastises Puck for leaving this behind. That's all. Either now, way, I've um, heard, uh, I think I've read other translations before where it was like, but I mean, who's to say which is uh, more wrong? <laughs> Just like where it was like he was upset at him for sort of leaving him at that time. But I mean, I guess it makes sense either way. Sure. Anyway, com- coming back to Puck, uh, we get the full reveal of the Misty Valley on the ground level here with Puck as he's <laughs> ready to fight as soon as he arrives and realizes it's actually a very peaceful, placid uh Swampland? Uh, I don't know what to call it. What kind of? Yeah, it's like a marsh, I guess. Yeah, marsh. Yeah, there that's you go. nicer Absolutely. than swamp. <laughs> and he finds it very relaxing, and they have these nice uh, scenery shots of the whole place, you know, swaying branches and lily pads. And Puck actually lays down one of the lily pads, saying that he feels at ease and strangely nostalgic. And I wondered if that was uh, the, the the seasons. He says it's it's autumn here, but there are so many flowers. So obviously there's an unnatural season thing happening. And the last yeah. time I remember that, of course, was around Flora's place. And that was because of the residual effect of the well, the mansion and the, the tree that inhabited that, that area. There's also another case where it happens, which is, you know, Falconia with the, sure. the tree. Yeah. More More recent example. Yeah, and it might actually be more, you know, more proper as a comparison. Sure. In all three of those, though, the tree is at the centerpiece of the whole thing. Here, it's this giant cedar sure. tree, and at Flores was the, you know, her tree. And yeah, anyway, something to think about for sure. Anyway, uh, also the fact that Puck uses in the Dark Horse translation the word nostalgic makes me think if this might have a similar atmosphere to Elfhelm. Of course. That's making a jump in judgment because Elfham hasn't even been properly introduced yet, so there's no reason for readers to assume anything like that. But it made me wonder, anyway. It does. Uh, it it kind of does make sense. It's not as sort of, I guess, uh, disjointed an idea because if his if her wish was to you know be like an elf and to maybe have a environment like that of an elf's, and you know the God Hand had any sort of idea how that worked then it would make sense that it would be kind of similar. Hmm. Sort of like the elves are. Sure. Yeah. And let's not forget that the tree actually, you know, housed elves in the past, so that there might still yeah. be some inference from it. It's a, it's like a logical sort of reverse engineering that you can sure. do of that to interpret it. It's actually, to me, that it's a very short but memorable reveal about the tree, but I, I think that's the linchpin for how the fog and why this place is unique happens to begin with, you know, even as far back as why Roshin so into or uh, obsessed with elves and trying to emulate an elven area is because the idea of elves being here comes from, you know, oral history or tradition or memories of that place when elves used to inhabit here. And that's lingered on even though after elves have left and even still, They've left behind, you know, the remnants of what that area must have been like, uh, and, and the fact that the, the effect of the atmosphere and all that, which, as we already discussed earlier, <clears throat> might also be influenced by her being an apostle. But you know, where, where do you, where does that border? Where, yeah. where, which, which one is which? You know, I don't know. Yeah, she might, she might have just amplified because, unless I'm mistaken, it was already known as a misty valley before she became an apostle. You know, when she 
in, in our little flashback with Jill, I think she already causes that. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. sure, but the point is she might just be amplifying, you know, with her power, uh, something that was already there. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, immediately after this kind of placid scene, we, we get, it's actually, I think it's really cleverly done the way the, the nature of these things is revealed because, uh, Puck sees these kids and you know, he's in stealth mode. They're playing with what looks like a ball or a beach ball, kind of tossing it back and forth. And mm. it looks very peaceful and fun. And he kind of, you know, holds himself back. He says, I can't, I can't, <laughs> but he, 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 fights his, he fights his urge, but he look, it looks so much fun. He just runs in there like a kid. Uh, the the liner notes of this scene actually make reference to the way that he walks being from a comedian, a Japanese comedian named Kenichi Hagimoto. But I, I I don't know I don't I don't know what the Japanese liner notes say. I don't have that in front of me. But either way, I, I, it's probably accurate. I don't know. Yeah, uh, well, Miro often makes references to you know uh, some kind of Japanese cultural style of stuff. You know, it, it also happens during the ball uh, in Britannis and, you know, at those, at those times. So yeah. it's, not, it's not really also surprising. Japanese wrestlers as well, I think, in some, in some scenes. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's done quite a few things like it, but, yeah, it's, uh, unfortunately, it's kind of lost on uh, yeah. Westerners. <laughs> well, universally, you can definitely see that he just does not fit in as he's running back and forth with them. It's not, and yeah. they realize that, too. Yeah. As I was saying, the way this reverses is, you know, they hand him, he tries to emulate their face, which is really funny as well. You know, he's trying to fit in with them, making a mask of his face, trying to pull his eyes and messes up his hair. And he actually walks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Looks pretty effectively like them. But they hand him the ball and uh, he realizes it's an eyeball, you know, and suddenly, you know, the reality of this place kind of sits in for him. But even that's kind of a comic reveal. Yeah, I, I... I actually love how these panels are, you know, the, the shot of him, you know, being found out and how he's, you know, like paralyzed by the sword. And then when they're handing the eye and he's actually like, he becomes stiff. They poke him with sticks. It's a, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty great. It's one, really one of my favorite moments. Yeah. The drawing at the top of that page is very, very ballsy of Miura to draw it in such a fashion, you know, and like a very childlike drawing of Puck. It's just interesting. Yeah. Never very seen much ever getting, again. Yeah, I mean, but it really gets the emotion across too. It's yeah. sort of, it almost is like just a little emoticon for yeah. <laughs> for Puck being shocked beyond you know belief there. Yeah. Anyway, as we the scene transitions, um, the children notice that the queen's back and she's brought a friend. It's as if they detect it innately. You know, they're maybe they have some kind of sixth sense to that ties them to. Yeah, well, they probably do. I'm, you know, seems logical. Anyway, um, Puck heads in their direction and comes across a giant cedar tree. uh, And at that point, he he detects something about the tree. You know, detects maybe it's odd, and uh, has a memory of this place as you know elves from the past. You know, flash past his eyes. I really love this reveal. One of the more memorable parts of this whole section for me, anyway. Yeah, how they just you know fly past him. (laughs) Uh, just this, the memory of this place suddenly hits him, and he doesn't say it until later. I think it's volume sixteen when he finally tells Rasheen yeah. that el- elves did once live here. But you can kind of intuit what's happening here. I think pretty yeah, pretty well. he's he's feeling the memory or the aura left by the yeah. former inhabitants, and and I like how how they're drawn. You can tell you you can see you know how different they are from uh, mm-hmm. the imposters. 
Absolutely, yeah. And it, it solidifies, as you're saying, you know, true elves versus these fake elves. And then we look down and we see uh, Roisin making her full pitch to Jill here. As, she, uh, as the children bring over, you know, berries and they put a wreath on her head. And Roisin's really making a hard sell for yeah. making this her new home. You know, getting close to her, hugging her, telling her that, you know, human grown-ups aren't allowed here. And it really makes it look very idyllic. The way the episode ends, they're dropping flowers and uh, over her, kind of serenading her into this this place. And it, uh, actually, is that the end? Yeah. Wow. That's so weird. Anyway, the way the episode ends is dropping the flowers, and then there's this another beautiful picture of Jill looking overlooking Misty Valley with the children hopping onto dragonflies. You know, it's very um, idyllic. But then Puck arrives and um, tries to get her out of there. He says, I'm, I'm here to save you. But at this point, Jill's on the fence. You know, this is probably the closest she's come to saying yes and agreeing to Roisin's deal. Yeah. But what's interesting <laughs> about this whole conversation is that, you know, Puck's trying to be the voice of reason, but his arguments end up repelling her from his choice. You know, she makes an argument about how, uh, you know, being an adult, she doesn't want to become an adult for the same reasons where she didn't want to become an adult. You know, she's, she's arguing against him just as much as he's arguing for her in this sense. Yeah. You know, and she thinks about she doesn't she doesn't want to grow up she doesn't want to become her mother you know too scared to fight back too scared to run away it's actually pretty you know it's pretty harsh and pretty like she, she's not facing away from the truth here she's fully you know like you can tell she blames her mother almost as much as her father and she mm-hmm. uh, i find that part very you know very harsh i mean difficult for the reader to to to, to bear because it's a child which who's fully aware of the wrong that's been done to her. Yeah. One of the more chilling things she says is uh, that because she knows these characteristics are in her parents, that she's she's afraid that she will turn into them because she's their child, you know, as if genetically or in, in, by yeah. inheritance. By <laughs> inheritance, she'll become a weakling or a coward like her parents, and that's what terrifies her. So she's on the fence uh, until she sees these children, you know, making mock war with these insect parts. And yeah. it looks nice, and uh, I really love how this actually is revealed, because it's a page turn reveal, which Mira doesn't do that often. You know, it doesn't. It looks nice and, and cozy until you turn the page, and then the, the atmosphere is dramatically different on the following page. So, yeah, nice reveal. Well, it's because you know they're pretending, they're playing, and then yeah. they actually impale themselves. It's that's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Pre- pretty. Yeah. And you know, I, I like how he's. You know, inked the scene where it, mm-hmm. you know, immediately turns into some kind of horror, you know, a feeling of horror story, you know, uh, all in black, you know, with some kind of black background. It feels darker, you know, even though the lightning uh, hasn't changed, but, it, it, you know, the sh- scenes feel a lot darker. Yeah, he, he adds this artificial stark lighting on things. Uh, it actually it gets kinda... more and more dramatic by the final pages, like, you know, the pages themselves are actually black rather than white in the framing. Yeah. Yeah. They just look, they look so horrifying, you know, the stark light, you know, that's sort of revealing their faces is like with blood dripping on them. It actually both amplifies and masks a lot of the dra- the, the gore that's happening here. Cause you can't actually see yeah. it's being impaled, but the, the spray of blood is emphasized because of the silhouette, you know, and the, and the, yeah. the everything's black. Yeah. And Puck reflects. Faces. Go ahead. 
Spock reflects reflects on the fact that only humans can enjoy, you know, these kind of things, you know. Humans are monsters. Right. And we I mean, I I wonder if the reader didn't know at this point that they were also pseudo apostles, but it's made very clear to us very soon that and, and even by Puck's line that these are these are humans turning yeah. monsters, you know, not just you know, some kind of natural creature. Well, I, I think, you know, it's uh, it's clear, but it just reinforces the fact that, you know, this is also part of, you know, like when Jill says she doesn't want to grow into a mother or father, you know, because of the trappings of, you know, mankind. But, you know, like even though these guys are pretending to be elves, they're still, you know, they're still trapped into, you know, humanity's uh, darker, you know, parts, you know. And that, that also that's also shown into the next scene where, you know... Uh, one of the elves pretend to rape another one by impaling him with his dart. By killing it with its stinger, yeah, adult yeah. Attack, you know, going yeah. on here. It's just, you know, it gets very, very dark. It's yeah. pretty horrifying. Also, you know, the fact that a child knew what that was is, ugh. Yeah, yeah, what, what, that, that's the, yeah, that's the thing. And Jill also knows because she's been, you know, uh, yeah. attacked at least. You know, we don't, you know, in that manner. And you know, the others know as well. So, it's yeah, it's pretty, pretty dark. Yeah, I realized I'd actually jumped past that reveal, uh, or the the this extended scene of her dad's friend coming in the room and then you know licking her cheek. That's a horrifying thing. And we see she got out of the room at that in that particular scene. Yeah, I'm just kind of jumping back a little bit. Sorry. And even just when when she's reflecting on that, you you can also see her her squeezing puck, you know, yeah. uh, hard enough to you know to cause him pain. So you you can tell it's. Uh, it's a pretty serious thing. Whole whole reflection there is, you know, really pretty strong. Right. It's also interesting. Uh, I mean, this whole scene of the ch- children attacking each other. Um, you know, they're smiling and laughing throughout the whole time, uh, and, and Jill swats them away. But at that moment, you know, after they're on the ground, you know, reality sets in, and these kids begin transforming back into kids. You know, from their yeah, the their dead forms. ones. Yeah. Um, makes it much more clear the circumstance uh and then they turn on her or at least they appear to turn on her but of course they're obeying Orsheen's command but it's it's a scary moment for, for at that moment because they are wondering if she's an enemy yeah i, well, I she think she probably should have given more specific commands because they really just destroyed her sales pitch with the flowers yeah, really and, you know the wreath and you know as bad as puck was doing convincing her to go they just really uh really it's a slam dunk for him now yeah and then she runs towards uh, the tree. Is it the tree? Yeah, has to be. I think she runs towards the, the tree line. You know, I, I don't think she runs uh, towards a setup tree, but in mm-hmm. the opposite direction, actually. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to tell, and it, actually, it's kind of weird. She just—we uh, don't actually see, as you said, the, ge- the geography of this place. We just suddenly see that she's in an area filled with cocoons. It's a bunch of trees, right? It's a bunch of trees that have hanging yeah. bulbs, right? Uh, I, see, I, I think she actually, maybe by you know, chance, but she ran towards Guts, you know, so he was going yeah. through the some kind of you know tree line and she got there as well and they met at the a part that was filled with cocoons. Right. Anyway, uh, they How don't know what... This uh, cocooning area is... Like this, are all the tree lines around there filled with these eggs? Yeah. Yep. It's pretty horrifying. Yeah. And uh, Griffith, did, didn't you count all these at one point for me? 
Oh my god, yeah, for the kill list, basically, we were counting... I forget what the rules were. If I was counting every single one of them I could find, because theoretically Guts is going to be responsible for all of them being destroyed, I think that might have been it. I don't remember Back what the rationale... Uh, actually, I don't think we discussed the reasoning for it much. Just, I said I basically said I was giving up on the project because I wasn't going to count those fucking cocoons, and you said, oh, well, I'll do it. And so you, you, do, you deliver the numbers to me, and I'm like, well... Thanks a lot. <laughs> sure. So I don't actually know actually how you counted them, but I, I just know I got a number, and it is the largest number in the entire kill roster. Anyway, um, that brief aside, you know, we didn't quite know what these cocoons were immediately, but Puck, you know, sticks his finger on it and you know pulls back goo, and he's uh, grossed out by it. And at that point, he sees a stirring <laughs> of movement, and, and one of them actually hatches, and they were, one of the pseudo apostles comes out. So. We mm. suddenly realize it. Throughout this whole scene, Roshin's eyes are different. You know, uh, it's it's to emphasize you know the seriousness or the changing of her her um her mood, sort of kind of I revealing. Think it's her, also her like for it sort of reveals just the madness here of all this. Yeah. You know, before it was this idyllic, you know, beautiful bullshit, and now we're seeing you know she's she's basically you know a mad scientist you know with this whole lab of you know essentially cocoons and this whole weird <laughs> society she's built. Yeah, well, it's uh, you know the part where the Apple Society comes out, you know, and you see things for what they really are. Yeah. Right. Fairy tale just turns out to be you know a monster story. Yeah, and she's quite frightening, especially uh, sort of the next page after she shows up on the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, her face is very scary there because it's it's the scene I was referring to earlier when she's trying to rationalize the actions that she that everyone or Jill saw for the mock war that you know humans uh, humans always kill kill each other but human children are cowards and if you become an elf it's not scary anymore so sometime in the process of becoming a pseudo apostle you know your fear is dumbed down or dampened and you become more accepting of this you know gleeful you know genocide and, and murder basically. Yeah, it's interesting that she's able to do that. Very specific way of making them her soldier, her loyal servants. Anyway, uh, Roshin, you know, brushes off Jill's arguments and saying that you know this is a paradise where uh, you can be away from human civilization. Everything, only the positive aspects here are amplified. And instead of waiting for Jill's answer, she actually just. Uh, begins transforming her, saying that she will make her into something unique, something special, an extra special elf. Yeah, which is actually, uh, it's interesting, because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, from what she says, uh, clearly these guys are, you know, expendable. But, you know, everything that made Jill special might be lost in the process, so I, I actually wonder how that would have turned out if she had gone all the way with it. Yeah, it's true. I also wonder what her design would have been like, just to, from a you know viewers wanting to see what Mira can cook up, you know, an extra special elf, what that might have looked like. I wonder if uh, you know, I mean, because I I could actually believe from all the variation in her uh, her pseudo apostles that she could do something like that. She, could she make uh, Jill, you know, more like her? Probably, I'm guessing. I mean, what limits are there to this? You know, she yeah. said it, the, the adults are quite a bit different, uh, and. I, I think yeah. she can probably like impart more or less of a power or something like that. You know, yeah. it's possible. But you know, this whole thing also 
makes me think that you know when she tells her to spend the night, sing it over, everything. I think she never intended for Jill to be able to, you know, go back or anything like that. She would have probably just transformed her no matter what. Yeah, I mean, here she's just bulldozing her because the jig is kind of up. You know, yeah. she's not. She's just not giving her a chance to say no. Right. Well, I mean, it, ma- it makes sense. She's she's sick of this back and forth. She knows what's best for Jill. She knows she doesn't yeah. want to go back to the thing. So she's making a decision for her in a very childlike way. Um. And uh, she sees Puck, and she actually calls him Pecaf, and she rebukes him for giving Jill bad ideas and strikes out with him with her antenna. But uh, I like what I like about the scene. The reason I'm explaining is I like how Puck tries to sword grab it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fails completely. He dodges it, but, you know, the, the grab fails, and it ends up, you know, shattering or uh, slicing up one of the cocoons in this half-formed, half-cooked omelet a baby comes out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, that, and said, yeah, that snaps Jill out of the sort of sleeping spell aspect yeah. of this. Yeah. Which coincides with something else that's disrupting the scene, which is, you know, a fire has started in the horizon, and they turn to see Guts, you know, with a torch in hand, having already found the nest and is beginning to, to burn it to the ground. And he's looking intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The most intense, <laughs> as uh, you know, uh, Roshin sends a swarm of her people to him. And guts cuts down a tree, and they falls on, on, onto her creatures. And then at that moment, you know, uh, as they're as they're being roasted, guts is making a, a strange, intense face as the flames gather around him. And uh, Jill comments that at that moment, um, he looks. He looked the most terrifying monster in the whole scene, basically. Yeah. I really love... That's a very memorable panel of Guts. And it actually harkens back to the Berserk prototype, the way that Berserk prototype ends the final page. It's very similar to this, without the the flame imagery, but it's the same thing. It's a charcoal face with the single flashing eye shown. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting how, I mean, it sort of draws on imagery we'll see of Guts and the Beast and how they sort of intertwine and, you know, inside his soul later. Yeah, I mean, it, even just looking at the the iconography of his eye there, the way it's drawn, yeah. you can sort of see the beginnings of how that, you know, why that shape makes sense to Guts, you know? Yeah. Anyway, guys, that is the volume. And it, it, this is, again, one of those volumes where the way it ends, it, it ends on such an intense moment, and the scene plays out so naturally following that. It's just like you kind of just wish spilled over a little bit, but obviously the way volume well, yeah, I mean, is just we, It just keeps getting better and more intense i mean they really this is another reason i think people like this part you know the story so well is because it does really push guts to uh his limits in a lot of different ways yeah yeah it's also very suspenseful because we have not seen rasheen's apostle form yet you know and actually you wonder what it might be and it being so focused on insects this whole section so and her design is very unique very interesting so we'll get to that next time I don't have any other topics for the show. Uh, not are there any upcoming any. movies that we could talk about? I mean, <laughs> there's not much on the horizon. You know, actually, you know, uh, do Star you Wars, want to? <laughs> Star Wars didn't do anything for me. I feel like I'm the only one. Uh, me and me and Nighty, I guess, uh, didn't <laughs> really do much for me. You're in good company, isn't? And the the Batman thing. The only thing I have to say about it is like I, I don't have any faith at all in Snyder to do anything 
interesting or subtle or unique at all. It's just a mishmash of shit. But but they're gonna uh, punch each other. Well, the, pr- <laughs> the premise awesome. the, the premise of the movie is a fucking failure already. But actually, I, I was actually even more grossed out by, as you pointed out, the allusions to Dark Knight Returns. The shot of him of Batman holding a sniper rifle and the, the helicopter pan around it—that's straight from the yeah. returns. In addition to the power suit armor, like yeah. I, I'm really surprised they're showing that kind of stuff. Like I just don't think they can effectively do that cinematically and make it not come out off like well, a cartoon. They've already know? like it's already the roles are reversed, which doesn't you know it's like they're it's like don't if you're not gonna do it don't do it or if you're not gonna yeah. do it justice you know even at the outset like we're not even really trying to do it we're just gonna try to shoehorn as much of that in here thematically as we can in a yeah. mishmash like that's that is worrisome because I don't think know, Snyder knows the difference the guy that's playing Lex Luthor Jesse Eisenberg yeah anyway, yeah. You can sort of hear his voice in the trailer, and he yeah. sounds like a twelve-year-old a bully. Like it's <laughs> really not effective at all for Lex Luthor. Anyway, uh, I mean, you guys can probably talk more about Star Wars than, than I can. I, I'm just, it just didn't, didn't do shit for me. The same thing as the first trailer. It just feels like it feels like another Star Wars movie. This it feels needless still at this point. It doesn't feel like justified, you know? Well, you know, it is needless and unjustified, but you know, but so still... is the original Star Wars. I mean, you know, it's like, it's just for, yeah. it's for fun. Well, you know, the Star Wars initial trilogy had a story to tell, you know, this one, I'm not seeing that story other than we're back, we're home, Chewie, you know, that, we're, well, we're you know, here, Chewie. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you should go to, to the home. At this point, you're yeah. a little ragged. <laughs> you know, I, I, actually, the the thing is, a lot of people said, you know, like this, you know, final reveal was their favorite part. But for me, I, I liked, you know, the you know crashed ships in the desert. You yeah. know, that's that yeah. to me that one shot in the opening of the X-wing and the Star Destroyer. It's yeah. better than anything in that trailer or in the the Dark Knight. You know, yeah. whatever it is, the yeah, I, I agree. That was good. The whole moment that made me like think, wow, was the Star Destroyer huh? that revealed that, that that Dune was actually a Star Destroyer. Anything else is just, <laughs> you know, like yeah, whatever. I wondered why a super was. I think it was a super Star Destroyer. Why was that in? Ta- I'm assuming Tatooine. What was the, what was a Star Destroyer doing near Tatooine? But I guess it's Im- implying that even you know. 10, 20 years later, there's still a bit of fallout from the Empire. You know, well, also, I mean, it just sort of it like it encapsulated the whole thing because you had the crashed X-wing and the crashed Star Destroyer, you know, facing each other basically mm-hmm. in the framing of the shot. So I just thought right. that was really great for just what would otherwise be a throwaway establishing shot to sort of yeah. say everything about you know the past there and how it's, it's still kind of affecting the present. The premise is also doing something that I'd always feared. With the where they would take a second trilogy. Since I was a little kid, and my fear was always that it would be cleanup duty, that the next trilogy would be the ap- purely the aftermath of what happened in Jedi and you know all those movies. That it's like, well, there's a there's a couple more rascally Empire guys to rope up because they just refuse to die. Well, you know, I don't think they're going like, to do that though, because I mean it is 30 years later. So I mean it's more. I think this would be like the reemergence. Of what's going on, and I mean, they could play it like sort of, you know, it was tw- wasn't it like twenty years after the Clone Wars when A New Hope started? Mm-hmm. They could they could do it kind of like that. I mean, we'll see. 
So, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily a problem, but yeah, they, it could suffer from that, where it's like, hey, the Stormtroopers, check out their yeah. 2015 outfits. They're new. Yeah. They're different. That's my and that's my main concern with the premise, is that is it is it just going to be a continuation of the fight they started, or is it going to be a truly distinct story that can kind of stand on its own? That's all. I'm actually worried they're going to have maybe too much story in this thing. Like, that's what... I mean, I feel like there's also the... Mm-hmm the need to justify themselves that they're going to try to do too much. It's like, they just need to tell sort of a good, you know, come up with a basic, there's a, there's an evil force or bad guy or the empire and we need to stop them. I'm worried that they're going to come up with some incredible melodrama with all the, the old cast and the new cast and a bunch of twists and turns and things to ruin our childhood. So I hope they don't go that route. (laughs) What an uphill battle, man. What an uphill battle they have to make this, palatable for so many audiences because the, the entire fan base is fractured beyond recognition you know at this point what people want out of a star wars movie i think is is so varied you know yeah well you know i, I, I think go ahead they're going, they're going to do like i i think you know they've been very effective with the marvel movies and you know which are the property of disney and uh i think they're going to do something similar which is they'll make it a spectacle you know, and yeah. I think the, the fan base, like the, the real hardcore fans, you know, they'll be happy with just, you know, Jedi fights. You know, the, the, those are the guys who were happy and still are happy with the, the second trilogy, you know. And uh, no, they've Wait, got, who are these people? I don't know these people. Well, yeah, but, you know, these guys exist. And, uh, oh. you know, we saw in the trailer they have uh, some kind of pseudo Boba Fett, you know, like the chrome dude. Uh-huh. And I saw. They have, you know, so they've already prepared all this kind of shit. Uh, you know, so, you know, they've got, you know, uh, what to say, successors for every character, you know, probably, you know, you've got the, you know, pseudo Leia girls, uh, black dude is probably going to be the Han Solo type, you know, smuggler, roggy character. So, you know, I think it's going to be a, a big success, you know, probably much more than what Lucas could have, could have done. But at the same time, I'm not sure it will And you mean a success like art. it's going to, that they're going to actually... You know they're going to hit with a lot of the points they're trying to make, and it's going to work. Is yeah, what you're I, guessing. Yeah. By work, I, I, do you mean ticket sales? Because yeah. I think that's almost a guaranteed. Basically. Well, yeah, that's guaranteed. But I mean, I <laughs> yeah. think, I think, I mean, I think it's fair to have a little faith that uh, that they're just going to be able to make an effective movie. One of the problems with the the old trilogies, it's not necessarily, or not the old trilogies. I mean, the prequel trilogy is it's not so much that the mater- the raw materials weren't there. You know, with the story elements and the special effects and, you know, the costume design and all that. It's that it was just really horribly put together. It was just, they were, they were not good movies. So it doesn't matter if everything else is, you know, like, oh, it's all authentic Star Wars. It's like, yeah, well, it's authentic Star Wars done, you know, like a horrible made for TV presentation on the Lifetime channel. So that's not good. (laughs) That's not going to work. Whereas this is going to be probably very, very polished. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when the thing is also that Lucas himself is pretty much just a hack, you know, and uh, they're gonna, yeah, I think, you know, they'll have so so many people reviewing this shit and, you know, it's, it's gonna work because they're smart enough to make it work. So, and, I mean, the thing to me is, is I'm just really excited for this first one and for the fact that they're doing basically the, what was my childhood, you know, like, they're gonna make a new Star Wars and they're gonna bring all the characters back. It's It's a true sequel. In that mm-hmm. sense, that it's you know it's Han, it's Luke, it's Leia. I don't care that they're too old. 
because <laughs> I'm too old to really care about this that much either. So that's fine. Although, ironically, my least favorite part of the trailer was old Han Solo. I was, I was yeah. like, like, ooh. So maybe that's that. Maybe that speaks well to their future, you know. But they, are, you know, we'll have our cake and we'll eat it too. We'll get to have the reunion, and then they'll, you know, have all the new characters, and they'll make twenty dozen movies that I probably won't see half of them because it's just going to be oversaturation. It while the Han Solo mo- moment didn't do anything for me. I had you had to you could you you could feel how significant that was. Yeah, bringing back this this super important memorable character to this stage again you know that's a big moment yeah just the the potential is there just you know yeah. just to see what they do with it so yeah um man i, I fucking swear i watched a lot of movie trailers and i don't i don't i don't watch these movies i mean i'm, I'm sure i'll watch star <laughs> wars i'm not gonna watch batman i'll probably see avengers too but fucking a well you know what movie you know which movie and trailer has blown all these other ones away Let's see if you guys, if it's on the tip of your tongues. Genesis. Yeah. No, no not Genesis. <laughs> God damn it. I thought that's where you were going with that. Yeah. No, Mad, Mad Max, Fury Road. Oh, no. Oh, oh, no. I actually didn't see that one that you guys were yeah. raving about. I kept meaning to watch it and I never did. As I, you're not a believer? No, not really. You know, I mean, I, I liked Mad Max, you know, when I was young, like a long time ago. But that kind of wore off, you know. I mean... I, I scratched that itch with, you know, Fallout and, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'll watch it if it's any good, but it seems to be, I don't know, it seems to be gearing up to be some kind of mindless fun type of thing. And uh, I don't know if that's enough to, to, to bring me back. And, uh, that's I, a valid I kinda, concern. Yeah, and, and I kind of liked, you know, Matt Gibson and everything. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I'm why, my... why, yeah, why didn't they bring him back? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That would have been that would have been actually interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, you they could have know, done something like Kramer on Curb Your Enthusiasm, <laughs> trying yeah. to sort of deal with it within the plot. Oh uh, well, you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm open-minded about it, but I'm not really expecting it. And uh, I mean, I'm not holding out my breath or anything. And honestly, I don't know. I'll probably watch Avengers too, but you know, yeah, whatever. Okay, well then, I'll say then, just based on the trailers alone, though, I feel like the Mad Max ones have been on another level, just making me want to see the movie as the mm. spectacle that it looks like. I actually saw the trailer. I actually saw the new one. I watched mm. it, and uh, yeah, it was alright. I, I I have no exposure or experience with Mad Max, so I, I don't. All I feel, I'm basically waiting to see if it's a decent movie, and then I might see it. Maybe. Yeah. It's I'm real. It's a real distant possibility for me personally. Well, I think people um, were kind of surprised at how sort of exciting the trailers were. I mean, there were people that were fans of Mad Max that wanted to see it, but it sort of, you know, <laughs> it kind of took hold when the trailers came out. And it's like, oh, wow, this looks really, you know, because it's, again, it's that it's that George Lucas thing where it's like George Miller hadn't made one of these movies in 20 years or plus. So it's right. like, is you know, does he still going to have it? And it looks like, wow, well, I guess he didn't forget, at least from the, the initial uh, imagery. You know... About Genesis, um, <laughs> I saw the trailer that you linked to in the thread, and if those oh that, my those God. that have a scene, it doesn't... Go ahead. Spoiler alert, uh, I guess not, since they're throwing this in the trailer. And I heard the reason they did this, this is just sort of internet supposition, was that this thing's curating is so bad that, like, you know, only, like, they did a survey of movies that moviegoers want to see this summer, 
and after Avengers, everything drops off. But it like it had like five percent, <laughs> you know, people surveyed wanted to, were interested in seeing this at all. So that mm. this is like a desperate attempt to get people interested in it. But I think it's going to backfire because oh my god. Yeah. So I already didn't want to see the movie, but from the outset. But these trailers, they just pushed it to another level. Like unprecedented shit is. It looks. I mean, the whole the let's just get right with it. The John Connor reveal, where now he's come back too, and he's a bad pseudo Terminator guy. Where I mean, that whole scene where he's like, "Survival's what you taught me, mom." I feel Mm. like I'm watching a TV show, like a comedy. (laughs) Like he's in some. Some dickhead suit, and there's no gravitas to these moments. Like, John, what are you doing in here? You know, he just walks into the room. He ought to just walk out of the closet, you know, just like, hey, (laughs) I'm here too. (laughs) So, whenever I started um, this conversation about Genesis, I actually had hoped to find this quote from Arnold that I sent to Azil a while back. Arnold was mentioned, I think it was some article I read where they basically were asking Arnold why he's attached, why he came out of, you know, why he chose this to to make a true full return to. And his answer was really guarded and defensive. And it was basically like, I don't know. They seemed to know, they seemed to like the story and it wasn't completely awful. Like he was already backpedaling, like just in response. It was, it was like, it's not going to be too bad guys was basically what he was saying. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe you should watch Terminator too. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Like they'd ask him like, what brought you back for this? Like, uh, uh, well, I, it might be good still. Maybe they, they, they spent a lot of time on the screenplay and he really I just has to that. say that like, this is like his franchise. It's like, you know, his band going on another, you know, it's like they should not be touring anymore. It should be over, but they're still out there, even though he's a million years old. And mm. oh my God, even not even just the over the top ludicrous stuff, but even just, well, I guess this counts too, when he flies into the police car. And it just looks horrible. And he's just like, get yeah. out. It's like, yeah, there's a, there's yeah. a couple not, moments like that. This is not it... tugging on the old nostalgia heartstrings here. I've uh, been waiting for you a long time. Or something like that. Talking to himself, the CG'd him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's not worth CG him. It's it's really not worth elaborating on. It just looks like a bunch of shit. And it's too bad because that's a franchise that, you know, made huge shockwave for the action sci fi genre. It still well, is. The king of the action sci-fi genre, in my opinion. Yeah. In many people's opinions. <laughs> well, yeah, the first two. But yeah. then, uh, I don't know, was... Mm, yeah, that's it. <laughs> There's nothing yep. else to put There's in there. There's nothing worth mentioning there. I was going to say I brought it up in the, in the thread, but could this thing actually have some redeemable quality, like drunk with friends with a pizza, mm. you know, on a, on a Sunday night, just like, <laughs> you know, know, you're man. bored? Well, you know, after the it's first so bad, trailer, it's good. after the first trailer, I thought, yeah, maybe you know, with a pizza, like you said, you know, and friends, and, and you know, drunk. But now, second one, you know, I'm thinking even like that, it's just gonna, you know, suck. Well, I don't so mean bad. like you know, like legitly enjoying it. I mean, you're just like it's like a laugh riot, you know. It's yeah. So bad that this thing might be, you know, just fun to you know make fun of. Well, there's but, an interesting, there's an interesting, you know, trend there. There's there's good movie. There's bad movie not worth watching. There's bad movie so not worth watching that it's funny. And then there's like the other threshold. Yeah, the Terminator Genesis so... threshold. Okay, so you're saying it's going to go beyond so bad it's good because that I, is I the do, danger. Yeah. So totally yeah. unwatchable. Yep, yep. I do think it's going to be in that territory. It's going to be in the Batman and Robin, you know, kind of territory. Yeah. 
So Azil, Azil, I think he put the nail in the coffin for the basically saying like the the premise itself was already convoluted, and then they're adding this. So like I'm trying to think of how this movie's pacing is gonna work. Like, so they're gonna like go through the steps right of like recreating history, and then they're gonna add on this additional curveball. So like they have a they start with a curveball, and then they have another curveball, and then another curveball, another curveball. So like this is just gonna be a bunch of like horribly mishmashed garbage basically by the end of that. Yeah, it was probably I mean, written by someone who thinks he's way smarter than he actually is and the thing is probably going to have 10,000 fucking plot holes in there <laughs> and it's going to be like, oh god, oh why? Well, just, the, just the moment where they're like in a helicopter chase with Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor and the Terminator <laughs> being chased by John Connor, it was literally, it's perfect, it's the the snake eating its tail, it's like now yeah. John Connor's the bad guy and it's just like, oh my god, <laughs> And they're just trying to throw everything against the wall. It's just you know, terrible. It's too bad they couldn't get Furlong for the role, you know, to play the bad guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. That would have been just so great. Oh. <laughs> then, it would be, then it would be so bad. It's good, especially if he just can't act anymore. And yeah. It's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> just get Ooh. him drunk and drugged out, and you just like, yes, that dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know what? The guy they got—he is—I really don't like him. But in a oh, it works. Ugh. He's terrible. He looks gross for the part, but also just the way he's on there, like you survival's what you taught me, mom. I mean, he might as well have been Beetlejuice or something, you know? Showing <laughs> yeah. up, that was just, just so bad. I, I added two links to the conversation oh, on yeah. Skype. Looks, if you guys want to see, he, he looks great. The first one is great. <laughs> you know, it could be like oh, this is what like you him. did to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that's a wrap. Um, there's no Berserk news. Uh, nothing really to update, I don't think. Oh, uh, movie one of the Berserk Project is on Netflix now. I mean, right. it's I guess it's a boost for the for the for the series too. So that's good. That's a plus. So, I was happy to see the, I mean, not unintended consequences, but the positive consequences of that kind of media, cross-media promotion. Yeah, um, I meant to mention that earlier on the show, that's for sure. The volumes one through three, volume one in particular, crossed over into the best-selling manga category on Amazon. It effectively became the number one selling manga, because the current number one spot is being held by a Zelda art book, basically. <laughs> So that doesn't really count. Uh, I think it's even American published, so that doesn't count. Uh, anyway, um, so that's great. And Azil pointed out that it's not just that movie ones on Netflix that created a boost. It was also that that like a uh, YouTube versus death battle series where they had guts versus nightmare, which I think it has like several hundred thousand hits already, yeah. and it's only been up for like I don't know three weeks, if that. This so thing, this thing seems pretty popular. I actually oh. think it might have uh, had a, a much stronger effect than the Netflix thing. You know, I mean, yeah. it's hard to say for sure, but yeah, it makes sense. I mean, the 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 video itself, I, I, it's, it's it's difficult to get through for Berserk readers because they kind of just digest in a real hardcore voice like this uh, the whole series for at least from Guts' perspective. You know what has happened to him in his life. And, <laughs> so does Nightmare win? <laughs> no, a nightmare does not win. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's a wrap. Uh, we'll be back next time with volume 16. I, I doubt we'll be back with a new Berserk episode to talk to in the near future. I'm guessing May, June at this point. So who knows? But uh, as soon as we know, we will let you guys know. The end.